We are live out of New York City today, and we appreciate you all being here. Uh, today, this is a very special guest. Asim Balhatra is a cardiologist who has been a champion in terms of taking personal risk to try to advocate on behalf of his patients and his family and the people that he thinks have been vaccine harmed. So he has been very outspoken, and he seems to have moved the needle a little bit back in the United Kingdom, where they, are, they, unlike here in the United States, they are beginning to take a look and ask the questions that we seem unable to ask or afraid to ask because of fear of retribution and lack of research funding and all the things that you're going to hear about today. So Asim Malhatra is uh, uh, somebody that I have a deep respect for. I may not agree, much as I've said repeatedly, and Kelly and I tell you all the time, we may not agree on everything, but these in, these conversations need to be had. Physicians need the opportunity to share their ideas together to try to get to the truth on behalf of physicians. The only thing I know for sure about all my peers is we are the one group that is there to advocate for their patient, the patient. That's who we have in mind at all times. So let's get to it. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got mm -hmm. a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Road. Markers associated with increasing the risk of heart attack and probably even progression of underlying heart disease and people have already got some heart disease, has been significantly increased risk from 11% at five years risk of heart attack to 25%. Now that's a huge increase. If this is true, then it's very concerning indeed. But a whistleblower, if you like, contacted me to say that the researchers in this department had found something similar within the coronary arteries linked to the vaccine, inflammation from imaging studies around the coronary arteries. And um, they had a meeting and these researchers at the moment have decided they're not gonna publish their findings because they are concerned about losing research money from the drug industry. And there you see what is of such deep concern to all of us. Welcome Asim Malhotra, Dr. Malhotra, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure, Drew. Great to see you again. And and I believe you were out in the Pacific somewhere, or at least the Mediterranean. And so I appreciate you spending a little time with us today. So walk people through, if you don't mind, a, a little bit of how you came to this and what some of your insights were that got you to this point. Yeah, Drew, thank you. So um, first and foremost, I, you know, the background to me even coming to these conclusions, which I'll get in a bit more detail on, on the mRNA vaccines is that I've been a, a very big proponent for ethical evidence-based medical practice and informed consent. You know, the, the heart of being a good doctor and to improve patient outcomes is to use your clinical expertise, the best available evidence, and last but not least, taking into consideration patient preferences and values. So all my advocacy work in a way always comes back to, to doing to, to that framework, if you like, right, for practicing medicine. And I've applied that framework to the issue of the vaccines more recently. But um, I uh, originally was one of the first people, Drew, to take uh, two doses of the Pfizer vaccine in January 2021. Um, I did it uh, in good faith 
because I thought I was protecting, going to protect my patients. I did not in any way think um, that uh, these vaccines uh, could do any harm, especially no harm to the heart. I was a little bit skeptical, certainly about the what the efficacy would be, because we know that vaccines for coronavirus is certainly um, traditionally, even flu vaccines aren't particularly effective, but I didn't conceive of any harms. And then I went on Good Morning Britain in the UK in February 2021 to tackle vaccine hesitancy and explain rational and irrational concerns around the vaccine. Uh, because a friend of mine who's a film director, Grinda Cheddar, um, she was vaccine hesitant. She came to me for advice. I told her, listen, traditional vaccines are probably one of the safest pharmacological interventions in the history of medicine. Um, and I didn't think that there was anything to be concerned about. And then things started to evolve over several months. Um, the first thing that's really interesting is a colleague uh, and friend of mine who's a cardiologist, um, very smart guy, one of the smartest cardiologists, I would say, in the country, very well published. And he said to me when I met him in April 2021, he said, Asim, I've got to tell you something. I said, what is it? He said, I've not had the vaccine. I said, really? I said, why is that? And he said, listen, um, first of all, he was low risk. Right, so he wanted to wait. He was under forty, um, but also he said something concerned him uh, in the supplementary appendix of the original Pfizer trial that led to the approval of the vaccine. That was there were four cardiac arrests in the vaccine group and one in the placebo. Now it could be an anomaly; it's small numbers. But he said if this is a real signal, we're going to have a problem. So he said, "I want to wait and see what happens." Then July twenty sixth, twenty twenty one, my father. A uh, very well-known doctor in the UK, uh, honorary vice president of the British Medical Association, pra uh, general practitioner. He called me up and he said, "It seems I've got some chest discomfort." Now, obviously, I'm, I'm first and foremost, my expertise is in cardiology, and as you know, Drew, um, the best doctors are the ones that can make diagnosis from the history. I mean, eighty percent of the diagnosis comes from the history, and his history, you know, what he described to me was concerning, and I said he needs to call an ambulance. And unfortunately, you know, within 30 minutes of that conversation, you know, two um, uh, neighbors who were doctors had come around to see him and, they, and then he had a cardiac arrest in front of them. They'd called the ambulance in the meantime, but the ambulance didn't turn up for 30 minutes. It should have taken eight, eight to 10 minutes. Oh. And there was a flat line. He was in asystole and I FaceTimed and it was a lot of, you know, it was difficult mm -hmm. for me to, to go through all of that. But I then oh, um, organized a post-mortem. And um, the post-mortem findings really were inexplicable. He had two critical stenoses in his arteries. Two of his three major arteries had severe narrowings in them. Um, it was inexplicable because um, I knew his cardiac history. There was nothing major. We'd had heart scans on him a few years earlier. He was super fit. He walked 10,000 steps during lockdown. Um, you know, and uh, I thought, this is odd. He's had a rapid progression of coronary artery disease, right? So what's the explanation? And at the time... The only thing I could attribute it to, but it still didn't really add up for me, was, was he under severe stress. So we moved forward a few months later, and this is where things, you know, uh, alluding to that GB News interview you played earlier, um, started to paint a jigsaw for me, which started to look very disturbing. And that was um, two bits of uh, information came to me. One was there was a publication in Circulation uh, by Stephen Gundry, uh, an abstract which essentially showed when he was following up several hundred of his middle-aged patients, their risk of a heart attack at five years went from 11% to 25% within eight weeks of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, essentially related to markers in the blood correlated with cardiovascular risk, which is a huge increase. But then about two weeks later, a whistleblower from a very prestigious institution in Britain called me, a cardiologist, and said a group of researchers there had accidentally found 
through coronary imaging studies that vaccinated versus unvaccinated, there was a huge increase in coronary inflammation, but it had a closed meeting and they said, we are not going to publish these findings because it may affect our funding from pharma. Now, he was very distraught. He was upset. I went on GB News to say this needs to be looked into. And interestingly, what you don't know is after that GB News interview, um, a few days later, they must have seen it. must have got wind of it. They, uh, the, the head researcher, and this is unheard of. This doesn't happen. I've never heard of this happening. The, the lead researcher yeah. sent out non-disclosure agreements to all of the 15 or 20 people within that research group to make sure they would never talk about this ever again and sign these, these documents. Mm. So um, for me, that be, was sort of a journey. And then at the same time, we were then hearing, I was getting journalists calling me independently saying, we've had an unexplained increase in heart attacks since July. And uh, Dr. Mahotra, what do you think is going on? And then I decided that I need to start critically appraising the data. So I spent um, you know, several months, uh, Drew, uh, looking at that data. But just to add into this, because I know we're going to talk to Kelly soon as well. Um, as soon as I did that GB News interview, which went viral and had millions of views, and I know it was picked up in the States and other parts of the world, um, not long after that, uh, a very, I won't name them, but let's just say a prestigious medical body that I'm affiliated with um, received a number of anonymous complaints from doctors, apparently, after my GB News interview that I was spreading anti-vax disinformation and bringing them into disrepute because I'm affiliated with them. And they asked me to formally respond. I was uh, still grieving the loss of my dad. Um, you know, I, all my uh, immediate family members are now dead. And the closest family members I have are in California, in Northern, in Northern California. So I was going over there to spend six weeks to try and, you know, grieve. And I had to deal with this complaint, you know, over four weeks, which is quite stressful. Um, and I got through that complaint. And it was fine. I was left with a warning. You know, I didn't understand what, I was, what the warning was for. I think they wanted to try and, you know, hush me up a little bit just from one interview. And I thought, you know what, I need to look at this data myself. I've published in medical journals over the years on many issues in the BMJ and BMJ Open Heart and JAMA and telemedicine about heart sense. I, you know, this is what, what I've done as a campaigner. And I thought I need to publish, critically analyze the data and publish it in a medical journal. I'd realized quite early on that there was a problem, but I, I, re I also understood that I couldn't speak about it in the way I wanted to speak about it publicly. Um, I wouldn't have, you know, it's not going to be easy anyway, but I would have some protection if I got this in a peer-reviewed medical journal, my findings. So I went through that process. In the middle of all of this, something else interesting happened is that even though we now knew at that point, Drew, I know you were aware of this towards the end of 2021, the vaccine wasn't stopping transmission. There was therefore no scientific justification for mandating it. And around that time, our Secretary of State for Health, Sajid Javid, actually came out in a, in a, you know, uh, publicly in parliament and said, we are going to mandate the uh, COVID vaccines for healthcare workers. And if they don't get the jab, they're going to lose their job. We've never mandated vaccines in this country, any vaccine for anything. I thought this is odd. But also, we're now talking about a vaccine we knew doesn't stop transmission. There was no scientific justification for this. So I then campaigned both publicly and privately to get the uh, healthcare um, vaccine mandate overturned and we did that successfully but one of the interesting things in doing that is i had direct access to the chair of the british medical association i spent two hours in a conversation with him when i was in california and i said this is what i found this is what's going on you need to do everything you can tell the secretary for health to stop this mandate and he listened to me for two hours and at the end of that conversation drew he said this to me and this is relevant he said asim 
I've been in the health policy for a long time. I've, I've been aware of obviously the COVID vaccines. I've promoted them. I've been spe speaking to chief medical officers of the country. Medical, he said, nobody appears to have critically appraised the evidence the way you have in the last two hours of our conversation. He said, most of my colleagues are getting their information on the benefits of the vaccine from the BBC. Okay, and if you remember, Rochelle Walensky also came out and said that her optimism for the vaccine came from a CNN news report. In other words. That was uh, almost verbatim reproduction of Pfizer's own press release, right? So that, you know, I think highlights a lot of the problems that we're facing is mainstream media has a much bigger impact on doctors' opinions than people are led to believe. So I critically appraised the evidence, Drew, and then my conclusions were very clear, and I published this a, a couple of months ago in September um, after the rigorous peer review, is that there is um, almost close to zero benefit now from the COVID vaccine and preventing COVID death, and I'll break that down in a second. But the serious adverse event rates, based upon the highest level quality of data, Pfizer and Moderna's own randomized control trials are unprecedented. And they're at least one in 800, life-changing disability, et cetera. And they are constant, but the benefits are almost negligible. You have to vaccinate, for example, 7,300 people over the age of 80 to prevent one COVID death. And when you look at other vaccines that have been pulled for harms, they are much less. You know, swine flu vaccine 1976 was suspended because it was found to cause Guillain-Barre syndrome in one in 100,000 people. Rotavirus vaccine pulled in 1999 for causing a form of bowel obstruction, one in 10,000. We are talking from double-blinded, randomized placebo-controlled trial, at least one in 800 serious adverse events. And the most common of those, Drew, are clotting abnormalities. So heart attack strokes, clots in the lung, pulmonary emboli. So these are really serious issues. And um, for me now, I've, I've campaigned since I've you know, pu published this article. I've spoken in Parliament, um, an MP called Andrew Bridget only a few weeks ago, and I was invited to witness this in Parliament in official speech. He basically cited my work and called for a complete suspension of the vaccine. And he talked about all of the driving factors that led to the fact that we approved a vaccine that likely should never have been approved in the first place because of the original trial showed one was more likely to be suffer a serious adverse effects from the vaccine than to be hospitalized with COVID. And he's now got, you know, gone going forward with this. And I think more and more people are being enlightened. And uh, but we still need to keep pushing to break the mainstream media because ultimately the mainstream media, um, rightly or wrongly, has perhaps the biggest influence on influencing, you know, Basically, let's put it this way. Sunlight is a very potent disinfectant for malodorous health policy. And there is no greater sunlight than getting an issue of major media attention because then 10,000 watt lights on the people who have responsibilities to act, you know, it becomes impossible for them not to do something about it. So that's what we're trying to do. And I know I've had impact over here in the States with Fox News a couple of times, you know, Times of India, Spanish newspapers, but we just have to keep speaking the truth through to get this out there. And so even if you, you stand back, because there's no debate about the increase in all-cause mortality, I mean, that's just happening. And, and there, it's reasonable to say, boy, that increase could be, we're certainly zeroing in on the, the pathologies that are there, and there seems to be some endothelial clotting, something going on in that system. Is it COVID? Is it COVID plus vaccine? Is it lockdown? Is it booster? Is it some combination of all four? But for some godforsaken yep. reason, just to ask that question, because we might find out that the vaccine is contributing negatively, 
people are being vilified for just asking that question. It should be the most important question in every yeah. system, in every country in the world right now. I don't understand why yeah. they're, I feel yeah. like the UK is yeah. slowly moving towards behaving appropriately while we are, we are going the other way and sort of uh, honkering down. But are you moving towards trying to answer those questions? in the UK? Yeah, so I'm glad you've asked that question, Drew, because I actually cover exactly what you've asked in my paper. So first of all, you're right, we have to look at this, you know, a lot of these excess mortalities, etc, heart attacks is often multifactorial. But we've got clear evidence of causality with this vaccine anyway. So it has to be playing a role, right? And it's going to be a major role in some people and less of a role in others, but it's playing a major role. There's no doubt about that. Um, before the vaccine situation even came into my cerebral hemispheres being a possibility. Um, you know, I actually predicted lockdowns would see an increase in heart attacks and strokes because we know from other data that in war zones, after wars have ended, for several years there are increased heart attacks and strokes because of the stress of lockdown for sure. But what I would say before I answer the question about exactly what's happening with this uh, suppression of, of information, if you like, or, you know, uh, people um, being smeared for trying to speak out, is that... Uh, when you look at the um, uh, the data on where the cardiac arrests are happening and the heart attacks, the, the biggest signal from lots of different data seems to be happening in people between the ages of, uh, of 16 and 40, right? And you cannot apply really those statistics of lockdown stress and everything to a younger age group, which tends to be older people. And that data has clearly shown associations with the vaccine. Very quickly on the mild COVID stuff, very interesting since we last spoke, um, the Times newspaper in this country a few weeks ago headlined with even mild COVID linked to increased heart disease and strokes. Now, I uh, gave a lecture recently and I looked at the, the research on which that headline claim was made. And that headline claim had impact, right, negatively in a, for, uh, because a very important uh, GP I know who's a friend of mine, he was taken in by that headline because he read my paper and said, see, make sure it can't be mild COVID. So I went and looked at that paper published in BMJ Heart. And that paper's findings were this, Drew. First and foremost, the headline did not match the research findings. They did not find any association with heart attack or stroke in non-hospitalized people with COVID. And guess what else they found, Drew? You couldn't make this up. Within the paper it's written, we had an unexplained um, we found uh, an unexplained association with mild COVID and less risk of a heart attack. In other words, that research paper found that if you had mild COVID, you were less likely to have a heart attack. Yet the Times headline said the opposite. Now, this is essentially a form of capture of the media. You call it bad journalism, whatever you want to say. But in relation to people not being able to speak out, um, one of the ways that big corporations exert their power is through something called opposition fragmentation. And this is historical. You look at big tobacco, sugar industry, is what they will do is they will do everything they can and put their PR machinery into smearing people who actually call them out, right? And this is exactly what we're seeing. So if you look at the root cause, and there's a really lovely diagram in my paper taken from uh, another publication from some public health um, scientists, which is how corporations exert their power. And they exert their power by um, uh, capturing, so by uh, capturing politicians through the political environment, through preference shaping. So this is through capture of the media, for example, uh, philanthropic organizations, um, you know, which define the narrative. 
uh, by uh, the knowledge environment. So this is through funding research. And we know most of uh, drug industry, re- or most, dr- most drug research is sponsored by drug companies, right? So that's another issue. That is the most concerning thing I, I'm worried about right now. And I'm trying to figure out how legitimate or how significant that is. But I, I first became aware that our peer-reviewed process is somewhat adulterated when the Danish mass study was uh, had a lot of excitement about it. We were all waiting for the publication. It was New England Journal that picked it up, was going to publish it. All of a sudden, they refused to publish it. Then JAMA refused to publish it. Thank God my dear Annals of Internal Medicine finally did publish it because it was a negative study. It was a good study. It was a negative study. And they refused to publish it. I thought, there's something wrong here. I don't know if it's funding, uh, but there is something wrong with this process. And I think people are becoming, my peers are becoming increasingly concerned about that, where we're not seeing all the data. Let me do this, Asim. I'm having some glitchy stuff with my camera here. Let me take a little break, and we're going to bring Dr. Kelly Victory in here. I know she's got a ton of questions as well, uh, and we'll get right to that after this brief break. I want to give the gift that keeps on giving. Genucel Skincare keeps everyone on your holiday list looking young and refreshed, and who doesn't need that type of luxury, especially over the holiday season? Genucel has so many products that Susan and I love. Genucel's XV Moisturizer locks in moisturizer on top of the serums, making dry spots a thing of the past, especially great with the colder climate and all the dryness of our skin, right? And with Genucel's Immediate Effect 2 eye cream, you can see the results in as little as 12 hours, guaranteed or your money back. Susan loves Genucel's DFS Vitamin C Serum, the new Deep Firming Serum, as well as the Hyaluronic with C and Lactic Acid which hydrates your skin and makes fine lines a thing of the past while hopefully preventing future wrinkles from forming. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Take advantage of amazing holiday savings by going to genucel.com, and you will get 60% off with a special holiday stocking stuffer. When you subscribe to my favorites package at genucel.com slash Drew, and all orders are upgraded to free shipping for the rest of the holiday season, We will get it there quickly. Use code Drew at checkout for an extra 10% off your entire order. That is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Drew. My guest is Philip Patrick. He is a precious metal specialist, trains at University of Redlands. He has spent years as a wealth manager at Citigroup, and his current position is with Birch Gold Group. So gold has always been uh, somewhat of a safe haven particularly in times of great turmoil, uh, much like our present moment, I imagine. Gold has always traditionally been a safe haven asset. Gold specifically has, has always been about wealth preservation, right? Gold has always held its buying power. You can look at as far back as you'd like in history. In biblical times, one ounce of gold would buy somebody 400 loaves of bread. And today it does the same thing. So it's a store of value. But I would say in times like this, as you mentioned, it's particularly important when you're dealing with things like 40-year high inflation, uh, you know, the air that's coming out of a stock market bubble. These times in particular tend to drive gold and silver up quite significantly. If things are 
are different, the solution needs to be different as well. So I encourage everyone to get informed. And we have a lot of good information here to help your listeners. Just a reminder, I am not a financial advisor and I do not give out financial advice nor investing advice. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out now. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew and secure your future with gold. Do it now. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex went, oh boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's not addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. This episode ends here. The rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. Let's welcome Dr. Kelly Victory and uh, with uh, still with us, Dr. Asim Malhotra. Hi, Dr. Malhotra. Thanks so much for joining us. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I have often said there is no more compelling a anti-smoking spokesperson than a reformed smoker. And I would think the same about you with regard to this particular topic. Honestly, there's something very, very credible and compelling about what you have to say, not only because of your career as a cardiologist uh, and your knowledge base there, but because you began this journey with regard to the COVID vaccines very much on the uh, pro-vaccine side, uh, and you, you took sure. it yourself. And therefore, I think there's something um, that's really credible and compelling about your current views. Um, I want, I've got lots I want to talk with you about, and I certainly want to circle back and get into the weeds a little bit on some of these issues about not only the corruption in the, um, in the scientific community with regard to uh, funding and what's published and what's not, and the character assassination and all of that that's gone on, the element of censorship, which has been unprecedented. But before I do that, part of my job here is to get a little bit 
into the technicalities of, of really what we're talking scientifically. So I want to start with one thing. Drew has asked a question uh, many times in the past, and I think it's a reasonable one with regard to, um, you know, what's vaccine, what's COVID, what's COVID plus vaccine, you know, what's, what are the other variables related to lockdowns and other things that you guys have yep. been just talking about, just pure stress. Let's look at one study that I think for me was really a critical, you know, some critical data points. And that's the study that came out of Thailand that looked at the vaccines given in an age group, I think they were 13 uh, year old to 29 year old, I think was the age group. It's been a while since I looked at the study. It was 301 subjects. And what was important about this study is they did extensive cardiac workups in these people prior to them getting vaccinated. And they found that none of them had any cardiac abnormalities, everything from cardiac enzymes to echocardiograms, EKGs, you name it. And then following vaccination, 29.4%, nearly 30% of them had cardiac abnormalities following vaccination. That study to me is sort of, I, I mean, it might not have been a huge study, but it was 300 plus. Uh, and it was the only one that I was aware of at the time that did that pre-vaccination testing uh, to look for evidence of cardiac issues. Why has that data by itself not been enough to convince people at a minimum that worldwide we shouldn't be vaccinating people, you know, males under the age of, say, 40? It's a great Maybe question. Maybe not with Moderna, so I think the first, Yeah. I think the first thing I would say is... It was a Moderna is, study, as I um, recall. It was Moderna. So obviously mRNA, again, we come back to mRNA vaccines. Yes. Yes. Um, I think the first thing I would say is there's two two bits to answer that question. One is, um, as I said to Drew earlier, uh, given the juggernaut of pro-vaccine, it's safe and effective, what I would say is clear misinformation over the last two years, um, it'll take a lot to overturn that. And one of the ways of overturning that is getting this issue major mainstream media attention. So it doesn't get mainstream media attention. You're aware of it. I'm aware of it. Some people are aware of it, but it's not really getting mass, you know, a distribution of, of uh, two people in terms of that information and therefore harder to then overturn, um, you know, the current paradigm. The second thing I would say is, and I'm being sort of slightly devil's advocate here as a cardiologist is that. Uh, you know, abnormalities obviously need to be defined. Now, as far as I remember, I haven't looked in that paper in detail, but a lot of those so-called abnormalities will raise troponins, which is a cardiac enzyme, which is released if there's inflammation in the heart muscle, um, but can also be released, released from relatively minor things as well. I'm not saying this isn't minor. So the question then is, um, have, have we ever, and I think that hasn't been answered, right? With other vaccines, traditional vaccines that have been used, has this study ever been done before? It may well be. If troponins are the majority of the so-called cardiac abnormalities that get raised even transiently, it's possible, being devil's advocate here, that other vaccines do the same. But they decided to do a study specifically on the COVID mRNA. I would agree with you, however, the fact that we're getting 29% or whatever else, at the very least, needs to have a proper discussion and people need to say it's not an issue, but it's not even being discussed. And again, I think this comes under, you know, the, anything and everything that has questioned the narrative in the scientific literature about potential harms of these vaccines 
is being dealt with by medical authorities through, you know, there's conflicts of interest, we'll come on to that. But right now, when the evidence is now clear of harm, they are, they are behaving in a way which is described only as, I would describe as willful blindness. You know, this is a psychological phenomenon when, where human beings turn a blind eye to the truth in order to feel safe, reduce anxiety, Asim, um, I want to avoid conflict and protect prestige. Yeah. If I could, I, well, I don't disagree with anything you've said so far. At very minimum, just to show you how, how vacant the discussion has been, you're, you're, what, what Asim is talking about, for everybody to sort of shorthand our, our conversation here, what was detected was, was what is called subclinical myocarditis at most, subclinical myocarditis. And, and as yeah. he said, it wasn't even measured against other vaccine therapies, so we don't even know if it's a common thing in vaccines generally, but it would be subclinical. It'd be, it'd be only responsible reasonably responsible to say, hmm, what is the link? What is the relationship between subclinical myocarditis and right. clinical myocarditis? And we're not even yeah. asking that question. It's the simplest question we yeah. could possibly ask. So let's, let's just for the sake of argument say we have detected subclinical myocarditis. Is there any relationship between the one in 2000 rate we're seeing of clinical myocarditis? Or is there a much higher incidence and these kids aren't getting to those more significant clinical syndromes and are dropping out and dying or having other complications before they get there. These are very simple questions and you're anathema if you ask them. Oh, 100%. Right. I and that, agree, too. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and this is a quite, this is a discussion we've had over and over, uh, Dr. Melotard, that, that we are not having the discussion. What is it? I, you know, I, I think you're being generous calling it willful blindness. Um, I think it, it's more than that. There's, there's actually an active attempt to suppress that information. Yeah. And certainly, uh, anytime that I would post about it or post a link to a study and say, isn't this interesting? This is something we should look at. It was deemed, quote, misinformation, and I was banned from social media. So it's that attempt to, to actively suppress the information. Um, but you bring yeah, up and, very, and very I have valid to say, points. I have to pile on, Kelly. Be be before you go on, Kelly, I just have to pile on every time we use the word misinformation, that that's not a word that existed three years ago. Every time <laughs> right, it comes up, exactly. I have a pledge to myself. Misinformation, when doctors had outlying opinions that I disagreed with, we had a word for that throughout my career. That word was interesting. Thank you. That's interesting. Right. I disagree. Here's why. That was interesting. Thank you for raising an issue. The notion of misinformation is a brand new moniker that I've never heard before the last three years, as well as the idea of there being narratives in biology. Biology does not have narratives. Narr that's like trying to have a narrative about the behavior of a cloud. Biology is like cloud <laughs> behavior. It's probabilistic. It's clinically based. It's there's a lot goes into the sort of the art of this that is not strictly evidence based medicine. But evidence based medicine itself has been hijacked, and this notion of misinformation has arisen. And we need to take back our practice of medicine. Is something I'm realizing yeah. acutely is necessary. Yeah, yeah, Drew. And on that point, um, I think two things to say. If you if you let me, one is. Um, you know, we, we talked about this briefly before. I know in California, there are now attempts for laws to be passed where yeah. doctors who don't go passed. along with guidelines yeah. could yeah. lose their license. They have so it's going it through begins, appeal process. It goes into right. law. So, no, they've so been appealed, but it's going doctors, into law by January 1st. Or January 1st. All doctors listening to this must say no, right? They can't, they can't take out the whole medical profession. 
if doctors allow this to happen, you know, to quote Martin Luther King, it is a moral obligation, for, uh, a moral duty for citizens to disobey unjust laws. I'm saying for doctors, they must say no to this because they will lose the meaning of the word doctor if they allow this unethical law to be passed. They must say no, right? They must do that. They must stop this from happening. It is unbelievable. What, what, and coming what, back to them, sorry, go on, Kelly. No, no, you, you go ahead. You go ahead and finish your thoughts. Yeah. So, so one really critical paper that I would urge everybody to read, whether you're a doctor or not, is written for, from somebody I describe as a Stephen Hawking-like figure in medicine. Professor John Ioannidis, Professor of Medicine and Statistics at Stanford, the most cited medical researcher in the world, certainly one of the, one of the ones with the most highest uh, in scientific integrity as well. He wrote a paper, Open Access, in 2017 called How to Survive the Medical Misinformation Mess. And he makes some key points. And he says, uh, most doctors are unaware of the fact that uh, medical misinformation contributes to overuse, underuse, uh, avoidable adverse events, waste, and missed opportunities for right care. And he says 30 to 50%, and this has been verified, of all healthcare activity in the United States brings no benefit to the patients. And the reasons are these. Most healthcare research, most medical research is misleading to at least some degree. In a previous paper, he said most, medical, most published research findings are false. He says most healthcare practitioners are not aware of the problem. That's why we're not combating it. They believe what they're being told from their medical guideline authorities, whether it's the CDC or the FDA. And then he says they, the third problem is they then lack the necessary skills. That's part of medical training. We can resolve that quite quickly to critically appraise the evidence. And then patients and families um, lack accurate information to make informed decisions when it comes to their care. And he says those are the four major factors. And if people read that, you will understand the roots of this problem. And through understanding the roots of the problem, you find the solutions. But Kelly, as you said earlier, this, um, you said I was being generous with the willful blindness. I think you're right to some degree. I think the other component of this, which I'm sure you will agree with, around um, what's going on in terms of suppression of information, which really is an attack on democracy, right? Suppressing people who want to speak out and speak the truth is, is an attack on democracy, is, is identifying the root of the problem here. And the root of the problem is that we have increasing visible and invisible unchecked power from very big, powerful corporations, in this case, Big Pharma, whose legal obligations to produce profit for shareholders not give you the best treatment, but will act in ways that have been described often by, um, you know, the preeminent psycho forensic psychologist in the field, Robert, Robert Hare in his field, as being psychopathic. So you think about a psychopathic entity. I'm not talking about individuals within those uh, corporations. I debated the CEO of AstraZeneca a few years ago in the Cambridge Union. Very nice guy, had dinner with him. Um, sent me a book, knows where I live, so I've got to be careful what I say here. But, uh, but you, know, you know, he seemed like a very nice guy. But, but the, the system and these institutions make good people do bad things. And that entity, if you think about it, that has control over politicians, over governments, over regulators, that often behaves like a psychopath, so deceiving others for profit, callous unconcern for the safety of others. What we are seeing, Kelly, in my view, is the downstream effect of a psychopathic entity having more and more control over our lives, in this case specifically in, in terms of health decisions. 
Well, it, it, ab absolutely right. And the what that translates into from the patient's perspective is it absolutely eliminates the critical concept of informed consent. You cannot have informed consent as a patient. You cannot, if the, you have to wonder that whether your doctor has a gun to his or her head and that he or she is telling you or saying what they are saying or suggesting the course of treatment they are because they are at fear for losing their medical license, fear of losing their livelihood, fear of being derided or otherwise excoriated in the public square, then you as a patient have absolutely no reason to trust in anything your doctor tells you, not because your doctor's an idiot, but because your doctor is under a gag order. This is horrific from the perspective of a, of a patient. You know, I am obligated yeah. morally, ethically, and legally to tell my patients all of their options, not just a certain subset that's been prescribed by either my my practice manager or my government. So very, very frightening stuff. And I think we no, could we uh, could do a whole yeah. show just on this. Um, I do want to go back. You made some, you know, go ahead. Yeah. You know, consent, consent that isn't fully informed is not consent at all. And I think Correct. what's more dangerous to doctors losing their license, much more dangerous for not speaking out for their patients is losing their soul, losing right. their soul, much more dangerous to them and more dangerous to the future of medicine. And even the, you know, the, one of the things that my dad said to me, you know, before he died, I said that in, in his speech, my dad was a very ethical man uh, and shaped me in many ways. And in, my, in the speech that I gave at his funeral, one of the, I quoted something that he said. He says, when your child hears the word honesty, the first thing that should come into their mind is you, their parent. Yeah, this is what mm -hmm. people need to really think about when they yeah. act. Would your kid be proud of you right. knowing this is how you behaved? That's it. Ask yourself that question and you will know what to do. No, I agree. I have many colleagues who have said to me, you know, I agree with you, Kelly, but you know, I have a mortgage to pay or I'm the sole breadwinner or I can't afford. And, and my response is to quote John Milton, which is virtue untested is no virtue at all. Um, yeah. But uh, you, you made some very, very good points about back to this Thailand study. And you're, you're right. I don't think we've ever done a study, for example, that did cardiac workups prior to giving, for example, chickenpox vaccines or, or MMRs or any other vaccine series and to see whether or not perhaps those vaccines also cause some element of transient uh, subclinical myocarditis that is inconsequential. I don't, I don't know. Hard for me to even let the phrase inconsequential myocarditis come out of my mouth because because I think it's a, uh, I, I don't think that necessarily exists, but you, you make some very, very valid points. Everyone, hopefully, who's aware of any sorts of vaccine adverse events knows about myocarditis. They've educated the lay person, more, more people in the world now know the word myocarditis than ever before. Um, but that is by far not the only cardiac issue related to these vaccines, these mRNA vaccines, in my estimation. We are seeing lots of things, not just myocarditis and pericarditis. We're seeing this huge increase, or I am and my colleagues are, of superventricular tachycardias, you know, elevated heart rates. We are seeing 
significant labile blood pressures, big spikes, transient spikes in blood pressures, some of which are resulting in things like strokes and others that are just symptomatic in terms of headaches and dizziness, but but nonetheless, yes, um, labile blood pressures, we're seeing a rash of sudden death, um, likely related to cardiac dysrhythmias, uh, abnormal cardiac rhythms. Um, Talk a little bit about that component. There's more, you know, you are sitting in the catbird seat. Uh, Talk about what you're seeing across the board in terms of cardiac issues. Yeah, and tease it away from point, COVID itself, it. if you possibly can. Yeah, so absolutely great. Both both points really important and valid. So um, one thing that I found fascinating when I was doing my critical appraisal of the data is I came across um, it was a preprint publication that ultimately was published in the journal Vaccine, but it, a list was endorsed by the World Health Organization. Guys, this is at the very beginning when the vaccine was being rolled out, the very beginning, of potential serious adverse events that could happen because of the mRNA vaccine. So there is a list, and people can access that list from the WHO, and they base that list, and I'll come into it in a minute, on four bits of data. They're saying that these potential serious adverse events could happen uh, because of the technology that was being used, the new technology that was being used. Side effects from previous vaccines, COVID itself, and animal studies. And when you look at that list uh, and you look specifically at the cardiovascular complications, anything and everything that could go wrong with the heart is on that list. And this is what we're seeing in the community and this is what I've been managing. So you're right, supraventricular tachycardias, atrial fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia, cardiomyopathy, heart failure, heart attacks, cardiorespiratory arrest, this is in the WHO endorsed list. Now think from a medical doctor's perspective, if you're not aware of a potential diagnosis or a side effect, you'll always miss it, right? If every doctor had been sent that list saying, listen, we've got this new vaccine being rolled out. We hope, you know, we seem to think it's going to be fine, but there may be these cases. Here's a list of things that if you have a patient coming to you and you can't really explain what's happened to them with, through the history, then you must, irrespective, you must be aware of this list and therefore, you can ascertain, you know, through your, um, you know, uh, uh, your own um, individual um, uh, assessment of the patient that this played a role. Why was that not given to everybody, right? And you're absolutely right. This is, this is doing all of those things, all of those things. And I'm seeing patients, I've managed patients myself, vaccine injured, and all of those, most of those complications I have seen in patients. It, it is, it is... I don't know what the best word to describe what's going on right now, guys, with the fact that we are still carrying on and asking people to have this vaccine when we know there's almost zero benefit against the Omicron variant. And the harms are, are significant, unprecedented, and clear on very robust data. Now, talking about mild COVID, um, Drew, um, there, there is, you know, there was a... Uh, all of the data now most recently looking at that has not really shown any association with mild COVID. Now, severe COVID, of course, can be linked to cardiovascular complications, but any, Kelly knows this as, a, as an ER doctor, any severe stress on the body from any infection in somebody who's already predisposed can cause cardiovascular complications. Uh, you know, working in hospitals, the amount of patients I'd seen that come in with pneumonia, and then secondary, then a few days later, I get called by 
you know, the, the respiratory specialist saying, you know, um, Dr. Mahotra, will you come and see this patient? You know, they had a bit of chest pain. We did a troponin on this raise, EKGs changed, and they've had a minor heart attack. This is well known. This is not new. So severe COVID, leading to hospitalization, any severe stress on the body where people are close to death is going to trigger all these complications. There's not rocket science involved in that, and there's nothing new. But there is no evidence, zero evidence, when you look at mild COVID and any significant complications um, relating to the cardiovascular system. There's nothing. In fact, Correct. there's a paper pub published you know, in, in, the, um, uh, in BMJ Heart recently. Uh, you know, I, I think I spoke to Drew about this a bit earlier, about the, the Times headline was mild COVID linked to heart disease and strokes. Right. Yet the actual research paper found the opposite. Yet the headline news story was that. So there isn't. I think we need to put this to bed. Um, there has been different analyses done. Israel, uh, a paper published in Nature Scientific Reports, I spoke to the, one of the co-authors of that paper, and they found there was a 25% increase in uh, cardiac arrests and heart attacks in people aged between 16 and 40 associated with the vaccine, but not associated with COVID. There was a Correct. previous paper done during the whole of the first year of the pandemic pre-vaccine, and they concluded there was no increased risk of myocarditis with COVID in the first year during the ancestral strain um, compared to any other viruses, right, in terms of their uh, increased prevalence. So, you know, this is a nonsense. It doesn't mean that there isn't myocarditis that exists, but it's no increased compared to other viruses. Absolutely not. No. This is a nonsense. This, absolutely. Is, part, this is part of the – and can I just say one other thing, Kate, uh, Kelly? Um, in my view, a lot of this misinformation or this confusion, again, is being driven by pharmaceutical industry interests. Academics thanks to pharma are trying to publish, uh, you know, articles to distract from the real cause of the problem, which is almost certainly the vaccine. This is, uh, this has happened historically before. So when, you know, it took 50 years, I thought, you know, there, there's a saying, he that does not remember history is bound to live through it again. It took 50 years from when the first links between smoking and lung cancer were published in the British Medical okay. Journal before we got effective tobacco control. And that's because Big Tobacco adopted a, a corporate playbook of dirty tricks, of denial that cigarettes were linked to lung cancer and heart attacks, confusing the public, um, uh, and uh, even buying the loyalty of, dare I say it, bent scientists. And one of the things they did when people started thinking that smoking was linked to heart attacks they got publications, and it went to the news, that the reason that smokers were having increased heart attacks was nothing to do with smoking. It's because they were stressed, and stress was the driver, and it was just a confounder by smoking. This is a kind of, it's, we're seeing this being repeated. With this, the, fact we, the fact we're even having this discussion, Drew, about mild COVID, yeah, for me, is they are yeah. winning to some degree, but, you know? But he, he, right, right. And, this, and none of this could have happened. None of this could have happened, Drew. None of this could have happened without the cooperation of the mainstream media and big tech, because what Asim is saying is exactly, we've had these same studies we, we reviewed with Dr. Peter McCullough, another cardiologist, study after study showing that mild COVID does not have any association with increased risk of cardiovascular complications over and over. Yet they will, you will still hear on a near daily basis 
in the mainstream media that, well, you have a higher risk of developing myocarditis from COVID than you do from the vaccine. Or my other favorite, they will quote, they'll say that the vaccines, hang on, they will say that the vaccines, although they don't prevent COVID and they don't prevent you from transmitting it, they do decrease your risk of serious complications and hospitalization. Yet there is nary a study, not one study that actually backs that up. For, for the, the vaccines, period. There isn't a study that shows that, that the vaccines decrease hospitalization or death. Well, let me, let, I'm going to table that and just say I'm, I'm increasingly concerned about this conversation that physicians are having about how adulterated our publications that we rely upon mm-hmm. for our data and our understanding have perhaps become. And my fear is, because this is kind of a new part of the conversation. And while I've seen the evidence, and it does look spookily, spooky as though there is something going on, I, it, it risks us doing the same thing as somebody who disagrees with a person's argument and attacking them on an ad hominem basis. In other words, I don't want us attacking publications generally until we can really get the data together. And it's gonna, I don't know what it's going to take. But somehow we really build the case that what is going on, we say is going on, is going on. So this doesn't come off as an ad hominem attack of medical publications generally. You see my concern? Fair, fair enough. Yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I agree. Do. I, think, I, think, I, think, I think we have to look at it yeah, in an analytical, logical way that when we look at studies, we have a hierarchy of evidence double-blinded randomized controlled trials, replication, high-quality observational studies, you know, moving, moving further down the line. The problem we've got, and I, I see this as someone who also has been, you know, uh, uh, you know, an expert in evidence-based medicine, is that a lot of the poorer quality studies that are funded by pharma, unfortunately, right, or linked to pharma, are the ones that make Get the published. headlines, so the, the least reliable ones. Yeah. And then you've got more reliable independent yeah. studies that aren't getting, aren't getting the light of day. And therefore, things have turned upside down. And, and, when, and when you actually look at the totality of evidence, which is what I try and do, and we all have our own biases, of course, you know, the direction actually is pointing the complete opposite to what the narrative is telling us. And so what I, what I have suggested, if someone appointed me, you know, queen of the world, what I would do is I would make it that the, the, um, don't laugh, Drew, they might, (laughs) I would make the, the, the conflicts of interest that currently are the very last thing at the bottom of the 26 page, you know, research, uh, article are the conflicts of interest. In my world, conflicts of interest should be posted above the title of the study. I want the very first thing you read for people to disclose what the potential conflicts are so that I can determine as a physician, as a scientist, whether or not I'm even interested in reading this paper. I agree, Drew. I think you make a valid point. We don't want to paint with a broad sweeping brush that everyone who uh, publishes in a journal is uh, guilty of somehow fraud or being corrupt or whatever, being bought off. But I do think that the conflicts of interest are something that should be absolutely front and center and not the kind of thing you should have to look for after you've read the entire study. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, Kelly, I agree. And I think just to further this, I'm glad Drew's raised this issue because it isn't a small problem. It, research misconduct and fraud is a major issue. It's a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. um, Richard Smith, former editor of the BMJ a few years ago, uh, he wrote an article where he had attended a uh, meeting with many senior academics across very prestigious British institutions. And he'd asked the audience, how many of you are aware of research misconduct or fraud, manipulation of data taking place in your own department by colleagues? Okay. A third of the audience put their hand up. He said, how many of you have reported it? They all put their hand down. Richard Horton, editor-in-chief of The Lancet. I know Richard. I met him recently. He came to one of my lectures. And Richard uh, wrote an article in the, uh, the Lancet in 2015. And in that, he said he, had, he, said he had a Chatham House Rules uh, meeting, as in something where you're not allowed to disclose who said what, uh, with, again, some of the top science, medical scientists in the world, uh, organized by the Wellcome Trust. And he said, from that uh, discussion, um, there was a quote which he essentially put into the article and he said, possibly half of the medical published literature is simply untrue. And then towards the end of the article, he said, science has taken a turn towards darkness. The question is, who's going to take the first step to clean up the system? So I just mean this in general terms. I'm with Drew though as well. I think getting involved in odd, uh, ad hominem attacks and that kind of thing isn't the right way forward. You know, other people may be doing that. They go low, we go high. But we have to highlight the broad issue and then figure out ways that we improve the system so we can all have better trust in medical journal publications. And as long as the pharmaceutical industry is sponsoring research and paying the regulator and lobbying governments, we're not going to get anywhere close to that, Drew. And that's really what we need to be talking about moving forward. Let's take for me a, a little bit of a more of a global view here. Um, people ask me, in fact, even while you and I are talking here, I've gotten a couple of texts from people asking if, if I think that you personally are moving the needle at all in the UK uh, based on, on you know, what you're um, talking about. What we are doing here in the United States is very, very different today, as I sit here on you know, December 28th, um, versus what you are doing in the UK and what they're doing in much of the rest of the world with regard to these vaccines. In many of the Scandinavian, I think all of the Scandinavian countries, for example, now have put a moratorium on vaccinating anybody under the age of 40. I believe even in the UK was uh, now some months ago came out the UK government came out and said that vaccines should not be given to pregnant or lactating women or to women who are trying to become pregnant. This is COVID vaccines specifically. Uh, and I think there's been some, some uh, retrenching in, in the government of the UK with regard to vaccines for children. Here in the United States, it's you know safe and effective, safe and effective, get your booster today, still for all comers. Why that difference? You know, why the, I used to pride myself that the United wow. States really led the led the charge on healthcare. Not feeling that way right now. Yeah, Kelly. So I think I would just call it corporate America. If you pardon me using that term, um, I think when you talk about the visible and invisible unchecked power of pharma, I think they probably have more influence and impact uh, in the United States than anywhere else in the world, mm. and therefore that you're seeing the end result of that. 
when you look at the health of, of people in the United States, uh, if I'm not wrong, I think your life expectancy, maybe you can correct me on this, but recent data suggests that life expectancy is starting to reduce in the US. Certainly in the UK, it's it went still down, in the it last went, 10 it, years. It, it went right. down for the yeah. first time since 1996 from 77 so, years so old what it, to 77. So, so, so first, first so time. So what does it tell you? you know, and, and, years. and chronic disease is increasing. You know, all, all of us are going to yes. die. But more important than, than death uh, or, or longevity, in my view, for many people, is quality of life. And quality of life is getting mm -hmm. worse, too. So if we were doing everything, you know, one of the things I say, just to provoke thoughts in terms of the medical community, I say, if we were doing everything right as doctors, why is the health of our populations getting worse? Mm -hmm. Have you thought about that, right? And right. one of the major factors, of course, is our healthcare systems are not really um, promoting health or we're making decisions on bad information or corrupted information. There's not enough focus on prevention. You know, the system itself is now uh, causing a regression in people's health mentally and physically. And, uh, and I think the two of the major uh, root causes behind that are um, very big, powerful industries. I, I pick on two in particular that I've you know, worked on for many years and campaigned on exposing is the food industry and pharma, right? Poor diet, for example, mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. is responsible globally for more di chronic disease and death than physical inactivity, smoking and alcohol combined. And of course, in the US, more than 60% of the total calories consumed come from ultra-processed foods, which have got a multitude of data linked to many chronic diseases, independent of even weight. We have 50% in the, you know, we're, we are following, we're not far behind you in the UK, by the way. So this is, um, this is what we really need to be addressing. We need less medicine, certainly less overuse of medicine, and we need more focus on lifestyle. And if that shift happened, then uh, people's health would improve quite dramatically and population health would improve as well. Well, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I've said for many, many years, we don't actually have a healthcare system in the United States. We have a disease care system. And we're pretty good at the disease care, but uh, we we don't have any healthcare system. Hospitals only make one money one way, and that's when you're in them. Uh, they don't have a lot of motivation to keep you out, and uh, neither does the system in general. So it, it is in fact a a big problem. So let's talk about where where we are going from here. You know, how do we get out of this. Um, I teach a course on leadership in times of crisis, and I am uh, you know, the, the core of that is that people are unable to think critically or make reasonable decisions when they're operating from a place of fear. Uh, this We know that we did Absolutely. far more damage to, to people's health, frankly, over way before the vaccines were rolled out. We did everything wrong in terms of this pandemic response with regard to people's health. We told them to stay indoors, not exercise, not to get not get together with friends and family. We caused people to be uh, really driven into the basement of fear, to live in that place of high anxiety and social isolation. Uh, it was really the worst possible thing we could do to people. People did not go and get routine screening exams. They didn't get mammograms and colonoscopies and follow up on their diabetes. Kids missed routine vaccinations uh, and on and on. We, we truly uh, did the worst possible things we could do. And I think it will be probably decades before we, we feel the full brunt of it or understand exactly what we did to people, particularly children. Uh, 
how do we get out of this? You're not just a cardiologist. You also are an ethicist. Um, and you have a, a very moral and ethical way of looking at your uh, obligation as a clinician. And I appreciate that. So how do we back our way out? Yeah, it's a, a, it's a really important question. So I think there's, so we have to, there's a mountain we have to move, right? We are, we are, um, we are battling this mountain that is stopping information from being disseminated. And that mountain, there's actually a, a very interesting approach structure that was developed in Thailand called the triangle that moves a mountain. And that really, the mountain represents a difficult obstacle. This is a difficult obstacle. Let's just take, for example, the whole issue about the vaccine and mRNA vaccines, and we can apply that to many other things. So first and foremost, there are three, three sort of components of that triangle. Um, one is the social movement. One is the evidence base, and one is political. Um, the politicians are important, unfortunately, even though they don't all, always act ethically, because they have very, you know, they have control over um, over policies, over laws, uh, over things that are going on in terms of mandates, for example. Um, but I think most people want to do the right thing, and I think most people are either ignorant or have the illusion of knowledge. Okay, so but the 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 key is to disseminate clear, concrete, independent information based upon values, and we use social media and we use mainstream media. This conversation already, I'm sure, will have impact, okay, that people are hearing something that is hopefully going to open their eyes, get them thinking, and that information spreads. We just have to keep pushing that, to be honest, Kelly, to disseminate the truth, um, hopefully inspire people to act courageously, think about acting virtuously, being, um, you know, do, think about doing the right thing when it comes you know, to the medical profession, for example. Remember that their primary duty is to patients. And the more we disseminate that information, then we are advocates for truth, for transparency, for democracy. Um, and ultimately, I think the bubble will burst that we get to a point where the system you know, will have to transform itself. I think that, that's the only thing we can do. Um, there's a great quote in one of my lectures. It's from the, the second president of the United States, John Adams. And he says that the preservation of the means of knowledge amongst the lowest ranks is of more importance to the public than all the property of all the rich men in the country. So, you know, if we come from a place of values, we speak the truth and we also have to be compassionate. I, you know, I'm with you in the sense that um, I think it's very easy to get angry and it's easy to get upset with people who aren't enlightened, who have an opposite view to us, who haven't seen what we have seen and don't know what we know and may also agree, uh, you know, engage in aggressive behavior towards us because changing one's mind is one of the most terrifying experiences one can experience, uh, sorry, one can go through. Um, and we are having to change a lot of people's minds, which means we have to try and be compassionate when we communicate that information. And if we do that, I honestly have faith that we will get to a better place. But we can't be complacent, Kelly. We have to keep going. Um, you know, democracy is not a free ride. And, uh, uh, and wisdom without courage is fruitless. So it means we have to stand up, even at great personal risk. Uh, one of the people that I've become inspired by in terms of a lot of his rhetoric and what he says is Jordan Peterson. And, and something that he said that resonated with me is that you have to understand to speak, right, the truth. It's not safe to speak, but it's even less safe 
to not speak the truth because the longer you leave something, all these people are scared of speaking out at great personal risk, it will only get bigger and bigger. And the problem becomes so big that it becomes almost impossible uh, to deal with. And, you know, in broad terms right now, with the fact that people are increasingly losing access to the truth and even a capacity for empathy when it comes to conversations, that's leading us down a path to hell. And we need to redeem the world from hell. And the only way we redeem the world from hell is that people are, you know, are courageous enough to speak the truth. Well, that's why I started at the beginning by saying, and I, I truly mean this, I think you are a great uh, role model because you had the courage to change your stance on something. And frankly, Drew Drew has as well. And I, I appreciate both of you for doing that. It, it is We are hopefully emulating to people what it is to actually look at the data, uh, be exposed to new information and say, okay, yeah, I changed, uh, I, I yep. changed but, my mind you know about what, that. Kelly? Kelly, that was that was what we always did after the rollout right. of a new treatment. We would look at it, we'd right. reassess it, we'd talk amongst ourselves, yeah. we'd criticize each other what we were doing. We go, oh, you know what? I think I see what's going on here now. I'm going to adjust right. course. It's what we've always done. Something horrible yeah. happened to our profession. In addition to each individually being courageous yeah. and speaking from virtuous positions, we have to restore collegiality. One thing I am clear on is that physicians we actually agree on about 85% of the material, all of us. I, I did a large Twitter spaces today with a bunch of physicians who allegedly had totally different opinions. We agree, agree, A, we are there just to represent the interests of the patient to the best of our ability. We all agree on that. Nobody disagrees on that. And that some force has come in and, and disturbed the normal practice of medicine. Some of it is that many people are m employees who knew that that was going to scare them so much? Other is things like laws and legislation, this AB 2098 here in California. And of course, right. the social media and the mob. People have been fearful of retribution, but we're, we're, we need to come back to our profession as it normally functions, restore collegiality, have our differences. The differences are really in the weeds and, and, and take control of the profession of medicine again. That, that in addition that to individually standing up. Go ahead, Kelly. Absolutely. And that is why it is so critically important to keep big government, big pharma, the mainstream media um, out of the, the practice of medicine. You really have to wonder with these new uh, Twitter file drops uh, saying that, you know, the FBI, the most powerful law enforcement agency in the United States, was, was involved, had their hands in crafting the narrative about COVID with Twitter, the FBI. You really have to ask yourself, what jurisdiction does law enforcement have in matters of public health? We have got to go back to relying on our fellow physicians, our fellow scientists, public health experts, mm -hmm. have that robust, vigorous debate that we have always had as the cornerstone of good medicine, uh, not be afraid to disagree, but we can't expect doctors to make good decisions for their patients when they have a gun to their head. Uh, and we've got to, we've got to, as you said, uh, saying we've got to just say no. Do not accept this. Uh, do not just say we are not doing this. We will not be intimidated. We will engage in robust, vigorous debate, and we will come to the right answers by doing that. Yes. Uh, and I think that, 
you know, Drew's point about us being collegiate, you know, the safety in numbers as well. I think we often forget yeah. that democracy means people power. The real power, power is actually with the people. Um, but it's, you know, they're able to, this form of oppression or tyranny that we're experiencing in medicine is only perpetuating itself because they scare individuals from speaking out. But if, and, uh, if we come together as a profession, you know, in uh, safety in numbers, they can't take us all out, right? And, uh, and that's how we change things. So I think people need to realize we have much more power than we actually realize. And we, we've been so well, beaten down in America, particularly the insurance companies make decisions for us. The attorneys are up our butt with right. everything. The regulatory agencies, the hospital administration, we are just beaten down and we are at the bottom. We're like drug addicts at the bottom right now. We have to have a moment of clarity and move, move out of this state we're in because it is just so unacceptable. Kelly, to your point, decisions being made by the FBI. I was on the, on the television right. show when the night that the school closures came and I was like, what, what doctor told you to show, close the schools? What infectious disease consultant came in right. and said, this is how we handle a pandemic with an R not of this level. And he said to me, nobody, we just think it's the right thing to do. That is the story of this pandemic. Kelly, we have to kind of wrap right. this thing up. I'll give last words to you and Dr. Asim. I, I just would, again, thank you for being here. I know that you're uh, away and we appreciate it more than ever that you're taking time out of your schedule to join us um, and sharing really your your um, background as a cardiologist. I think it's critically important for people to hear. So thank you. Blessings to you. And uh, thank you for your courage and your uh, willingness to participate with us. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Greatly appreciate it. And I think if people want a little bit more of a deeper understanding of the broad themes that we've discussed today, please go and, you know, it's open access. Read my article in the Journal of Insulin Resistance. It's called Curing the Pandemic of Misinformation on the mRNA Vaccine Through Real Evidence-Based Medicine. And I cover all these themes in there and people can read it and think about it and discuss it. But at the very least, hopefully it will open people's minds up. Where else and can Dr. they follow Mahatra, you? Give go, us the, give us, oh, as you uh, say, just give us the rest of your- And then we're let you uh, go on your vacation. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, go give and us, have a glass of wine. Give us the rest of your yeah. yeah. Go go give us give us the rest of your contact information for so are, are you yeah are you still yeah, are I'm you in Twitter? Twitter jail like I am or you're out okay I am, no I'm on, I'm luckily I was I never got banned off Twitter and now obviously Elon Musk has allowed open season so many quite eminent doctors recently have been contacting me and doing videos supporting calls for the suspension of the jab and they're getting half a million views and getting shared a lot, which is great on Twitter. So Twitter is pretty open to all this stuff. Um, so I'm on Twitter as Dr. Seymour Hotra and then Instagram, I use a little bit as lifestyle medicine doctor, but Twitter's really my main sort of platform for social media and advocacy on this. Terrific. Thank you, my okay, friend. Thanks. Have a nice vacation. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Lots of love. And, Ke Bye -bye. and Bye. Kelly, Kelly, you and I will be in here next week with, uh, Mr. Dr. Brindle, is that how you pronounce his last name? Byron, uh, Byron Bridal, Brindle. yes. I wish we could get uh, Kelly back on Twitter. Bridal. We're trying, <laughs> my dear, we're trying. And then we, I have a... Uh, I know, of, I keep retweeting it to people like, tell you. We We've got I Byron have, Bridal and then... Here. Yeah. Yes. And then Ryan and then, Cole uh, and, and then first. Yep. Drew's going to be actually on Special Forces next Wednesday. Oh, yeah, that's right. Don't we're going to play it. It's a big day. So. Uh, 
Uh, hang on a second. We'll let give Kelly a chance to, to jump off before we do that. But, but um, <laughs> okay. I just want to say that we've got I've got a, I've got some alternative. Some I've, I've I've made contact with doctors have some differing opinions than you and I, and I want to get them in here as okay. well. So we can you'll see we we don't differ very much at all. We differ on the interpretation of the data, the trust in the data, the data we're sort of focusing on versus data, and and our clinical experiences are somewhat different one from the other, and some of that is a function of where we practice medicine and what context. So it's very interesting to 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 try to further clarify what's going on here, but it's going to be in a done in a collegial way, I promise you. No, I think that's great, and even today, you know, both you and Asim brought up you know good points about the you know the study saying well we haven't done a study looking at other vaccines to see if they may cause some transient increase in troponin levels those are all valid things absolutely those are things worth thinking about talking about and and frankly addressing we should craft that study or get somebody to so that mm-hmm. we can address mm-hmm. these things those are all valid things Many. this is the way it's supposed to work you're supposed to point out the flaws in a study that you're relying on you're supposed to point out how you think somebody has misinterpreted the data under or overestimated something so i am all in for that uh I will never shy away from a discussion that is respectful with other colleagues who are willing to talk about the actual data uh, and and not simply, you know, attack one another. Uh, the ad hominem attacks uh, have no place in this. That doesn't make any sense at all. And it's all triggered cognitive dissonance. It's a sign of cognitive dissonance right. when we go after right. people for who they are rather than what the argument is. Kelly, thank you so much. Exactly. I'm going to let you go. We'll see you next week with uh, Byron. Sounds great. Thanks. Take care. Thank you so much. And uh, now, Susan, you want to show something Wait, here? She needs to be queen of the world, I for know, sure. I or at know. least the medical t- world. I was going to tell her that that would be your vote. Should, should, should that be a possibility? <laughs> um, I see, I know many of you have been uh, patiently waiting on, uh, on Twitter spaces. We are not going to have time to take calls today. Christine, I know you've got some breaking data on the mRNA folding. Uh, do me a favor, look at some of the Novavax data because that's going to be critical in us interpreting the the effect of the range of proteins produced by mRNA viruses and how some of them may be what's causing some of these cardiovascular problems that we are seeing. This is all getting into the weeds of the science. She has a presentation she wants to give us. We don't have time for that today. Uh, Scott Adams, thank you for patiently waiting here throughout the entire presentation and listening to us. Hopefully, um, hopefully I did you proud. Uh, and and Caleb, you want to show something, uh, a piece of what's going to happen to me next week on Wednesday on yeah. Fox Network. You guys have to see this. Watch. <laughs> okay. To do something like this. Can't call your agent. No one's coming to save you. Me doing this is like feeling as alive as I can possibly feel. So that was me falling out of a helicopter, which uh, was something I did backwards uh, on the Special Forces, World's Toughest Test. You're going to see me and 15 other people going through in the Wadi Rum Desert of Jordan next uh, Wednesday at 8, eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. On Fox. On Fox Set Network. Set your DVR. You know, Channel 11 here in Los Angeles. Don't Los miss Angeles. the first episode. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane what we all did. And uh, we're all deepest, clear, de- dearest of friends now because we are trauma bonded together by what we went through in this experience. There is some longer uh, sort of... Um, promos on my Instagram account. You can check out I my stories there. I just posted one on Reels under First okay. Lady of Love. I'm going to put it on yours.
Okay, good. Uh, so uh, with all that said, uh, I, I've actually spent a lot of time today talking to colleagues and, and I am, I'm just so interested in what happened to us. We, we, are, we, are, we are an example of what happened to the entire country and we should be able to bring ourselves out of it because we all share the absolute priority of doing no harm and serving the best interests of our patients. Every patient, every physician I've ever met has that as his or her priority. And that should be able to enough to lead us through this so we can start to find some clarity, find some truth, uncover some of these concerns that people have so we can sort of start anew, a new birth of freedom, as we say. Uh, so anyway, I have nothing more to add today. Uh, we have lots of interesting guests coming up. We appreciate the, this year of, of you all supporting us on this uh, stream. We've had some really interesting interviews. I have pulled away a piece of a piece of the puzzle each, no matter how much I've disagreed with the guests, I've, a little piece of the puzzle has fallen into place for me with every sort of silence voice I have interviewed. Hearing the same thing over and over again does not get us anywhere. We need to hear all opinions and try to get towards the truth. And there's uh, there are a lot of problems. There are a lot of problems, but uh, I do, I am much more positive about 23 than I was about 22, particularly as it pertains to the behavior of my profession and our peers. I, I get attacked by peers sometimes on Twitter. I, I DM every single one of them. I call them on the phone. And guess what? We disagree about very little. The ones who refuse to get on the phone, I have grave concerns about their personality functioning. And I don't know. I don't know what we do with how many outliers there are, but that's very concerning that we have a lot of people that are unwilling to drop some of their defensive strategies to be collegial. And they should think about it. Again, a time for courage. Happy New Year, everybody. Appreciate you all being here. And we will see you next Tuesday early, correct, Susan? Three noon Pacific with Megan Kelly, Tuesday? Yes. Early. Yes, it's earlier. Tuesday. I think so, yeah. Oh okay. And Caleb, thank you for everything. We're flying in really late that night, too, the night before. The night, it's all right. It'll be Remember, fine. I said, don't book anything. It'll be fine. You book and me anyway. By then, you'll either uh, be in the studio little, or have a new cable for your camera that keeps making you turn green. We'll be in the studio, by the way. No, we'll be in the studio. I don't know why it's doing that. I'm <laughs> we're going to fix it. bought this. I bought three new cords while we were on yeah. the show. So we try to be perfect, but we're not. <laughs> we'll see you next Tuesday, noon Pacific, with Megan Kelly. God bless y'all. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.